Welcome to IT Visionaries, created by The Mission, your number one source for accelerated learning. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Ian and Chad welcome back author, podcast host, and thought leader, Jonathan Reichenthal. Jonathan shares with us his thoughts on the fourth industrial revolution and what you can expect as it approaches. We hope you enjoy the episode. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. The Lightning Platform is a leading cloud platform that makes building AI-powered apps faster and easier. With Salesforce, now everyone is empowered to build apps for their organization. Learn more at salesforce.com slash build apps. Welcome to IT Visionaries. We have a great episode for you today. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at The Mission. And across from me in the studio, I have two gentlemen, Chad Grills, CEO of The Mission. Hello. And Jonathan Regenthal. What's up, man? Hey, I'm back. I know. You, you, you're having me back. It's good to have you back. <laughs> well, it's, you. Uh, it's good to have you nearby. We'll say that because you can just pop into the studio unannounced, except we invited you. <laughs> I'm a convenient guest, I guess. <laughs> it's awesome. So today we're going to be talking about the fourth industrial revolution, because honestly, we don't really know what it is. And we'd like to have it explained by an expert. Jonathan has been working in secret over the past year, we'll say, <laughs> on a really cool project with LinkedIn Learning about the fourth industrial revolution. So by the time people hear this, it may or may not be out. So we'll uh, we'll update the show notes with a link once it does come out. But you know, he's one of the world's experts in the fourth industrial revolution. What the heck this is uh, going to mean for all of us? So let's start off. Like, what mm-hmm. what are we what are we talking about? Yeah, you know, one of the reasons why I like to do why I like to be an educator, whether it's at university or uh, doing online videos, is it forces me to understand the topic, right? And I got really fascinated by this this idea of the fourth industrial revolution. And I just started to read. And by the way, not there's not a lot of content yet. I mean, we're early in this concept. So uh, I read everything there was, I guess. And then I started to kind of coalesce a whole lot of different ideas into my own perspective. And, you know, I work with LinkedIn Learning, as you mentioned, and I pitched them the idea of, hey, you know, let's do an introduction course on this really important topic. And I ended up, you know, writing and recording a 22-video long training course, which uh, is uh, scheduled to come out on January 2nd. So let me give a bit more of a backdrop. And, and it has to do a little bit with, you know, who I am and, and what I've been doing for the last couple of decades myself. I, I love technology. I mean, this should be clear now, right? And I'm particularly interested in the impact of technology on businesses, on society, on individuals. Largely, I want to focus on the positive, but I also like to understand, you know, some of the negative consequences too. Over my career, this has been a consistent part of who I am and, and the kinds of things I like to do. And, you know, I was with PricewaterhouseCoopers. I was their head of technology innovation for many years. Part of that job was trying to figure out trends and where things were headed and their impact on the business and on their clients. So, you know, I got paid for doing that too. But I've kind of felt in the last few years that there is so much happening both on the technology side, on the behavioral side, society, economics, demographics, to our planet, I was losing sense of it. I, I you know, uh, th- this topic, by the way, this this area is called sense making, and so I wasn't doing very good at my own sense making, and 
I wanted to figure it out. I wanted to see what is the pattern that's emerging around us in terms of all these different dimensions. And that's why the fourth industrial revolution to me makes sense because it's a way that we begin we begin to make sense of the future. So how do we get there? Like, yeah. what, what is it? Sure. Um, well, it's going to take us a little while to unpack it. Let's, let's be fair. And my, my guess is many people listening uh, are hearing the term for the first time maybe or have heard the term and don't know what it is. Yeah. And I mean, I guess my first thought when I learned about it, I think I actually learned about it when Mark Benioff started talking about it in the keynote at Dreamforce, whenever that was a couple of years ago. My first thought was, what were the first three? <laughs> like, if there's a fourth, that means my math tells me there's there were three previous to that. Yeah, I think you're I think you're right. So it's worth talking about those. But you know what? A lot of people talk about sort of the first, second, third revolutions, like that's the beginning. You have, to, you have the first, the second. It actually starts much a long time. We got to go that. way back. You do, you say. do. And what? Well, actually, you have to go back about seven hundred years. To the 1300s. But I want to just say this. Humans have been around apparently somewhere between 200,000 and 300,000 years, right? That's what we think. And for most of that time, nothing really happened. And it's pretty bad to be a human. First of all, you didn't, you didn't live very long and the circumstances were horrible for about 300,000 years. And then suddenly something happened about 700 years ago that everything changed. And the reality is the fact that you and the three of us are sitting in a studio here with electricity, light, microphones, computers, it all starts just 700 years ago. It's a really short amount of time relative to the, you know, the, the age of the earth, the age of the universe. It's like a blip. And I think the best place to kind of think about where it starts is the Renaissance in Florence and Italy in the 1300s. It's the first time you have a society that is super focused on knowledge. They get that it's important to gather knowledge and to store knowledge and to use it to inform decisions as you go forward. Now, I don't want your listeners to think I'm not aware of the Greeks and, and, and the Romans and stuff and lots of other things that took place during the last few thousand years. But the Renaissance is the first time we're actually codifying this in a very disciplined way. And you mix that with new sets of culture, with art and music and with the establishment of the banking industry and then exploration. And that really is the beginning of a completely new way of thinking about the human experience. Fast forward a few hundred years, you get to the age of enlightenment, another important year, uh, period when we're getting even more deep into critically thinking. And it's actually the beginning of the scientific period. And what you have is you have the introduction. I mean, the most defining piece, in my view, other historians and, and uh, people who study this might disagree, is the introduction of the scientific method, right? Such a simple concept. Do something, get a result, try it again, see if you get the same result. <laughs> That's the scientific method, and it's changed the world. It's how all science happens today. And so that doesn't happen until, what are we, the 1500s, really. So it's a big game changer. We are at the beginning of the scientific era and the age of reason. Quick this is going to be a very long podcast if I keep up with this, right? <laughs> no, no, no. That, no, no this, that, that's, yeah, it's all good. This is great. I was just going to add some context for the listeners about scientific methods. So I know with certainty that if you pour Drano into flowers, mm -hmm. that it does in fact kill them. And it soapy water does not do as well as Drano at killing them, but regular water, they grow well. I learned that in sixth grade. Yeah. 
impressive to say the least. This is a man who spoke at the last or this year's Dreamforce. I just want to add that for everybody. <laughs> I just want to remind them. It wasn't about the scientific method, though. That's um, true. That's interesting. Well, thank you for sharing that. And by the way, um, <laughs> I did want to call attention to the fact that we're drinking a wonderful bottle of wine here. Oh, we are. And I think this is uh, out of your deep respect for my podcast. It is. Drinking Wine, Talking Tech. It is a hat tip. Yeah, for sure. We had to at least pay an homage <laughs> uh, and uh, and have it here ready to talk tech. Sometimes, you know, uh, tech can be a little heavy and uh, maybe you need to lighten the load. Lighten yeah. the mood. We are talking about... Yeah, Florence in Italy. So yeah, pull out the wine. There you go. This is a Joel Gott uh, from Palisades. It's a red wine, a 2015 from California. I think it's a Cab Merlot and Syrah blend. Is that right? They have a wonderful photo of California on the back of the bottle, which I find particularly wonderful because I love the shape of our great state. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, one of the questions I didn't get to ask in the beginning that I, I think everybody Maybe they're wondering it as well. But Jonathan, why should people be interested and why should they care so much about the fourth industrial revolution? Yeah, well, that's a, I, I'll answer that. And then I, I need to give probably a little bit more context again sure. uh, to make the whole thing make sense, if that's even possible. And then we can go back, yeah. dive into history and we can move go forward a little forward. bit. Yeah. yeah, let's do it. That's great. There's dare a lot I, of value. Dare I say back to the future? Oh. <laughs> Sounds like a great show. <laughs> There is an, a huge amount of value to try to understand the future and probably never more so than now because it's about relevancy. If you are a business that has succeeded for some time or you're a new business, what level of confidence do you have that your business will still be relevant five years from now or 10 years? And that's a question you need to ask all the time. You need to be paranoid about that because there are so many other, well, there's a lot of comp competition. There's a lot of disruptors uh, all happening at sort of the same time. And, you know, where has taken historically a company some time to, you know, lose its market share and for people to uh, have to reskill. Nowadays, this is happening really quickly. And, and as every year goes by, the period of time becomes shorter. You know, a company's time on the Fortune 500 is as short as it's ever been. So I think there's a lot of interest from you know, the C-suite, the board, all sorts of leaders and managers to try to figure out where things are headed in their industry, in their life. Like I've said, it's important to know the future because of relevancy to a business. But what about relevancy to you? How relevant will you be in a few years? Did you have a question? Yeah, no, I mean, I was just going to add to that, that we don't have a crystal ball to see in the future, but what we do have is the ability to make a hypothesis about how we think the future is and then make contingency plans if those hypotheses are incorrect. And I think that that's part of what people kind of miss about that kind of like laissez-faire, well, I can't come, I can't predict what's going to happen. So like, why would I spend, you know, a bunch of time doing it? is obviously, you know, not a good business practice, but if we can just start to think about like what are some of the things that we think will be happening and obviously like hedge our bets there, I think that that's an important piece and if we don't like this this picture of the future that is the fourth is a huge kind of like first rock in the uh proverbial uh glass case, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? You know, you've put in big rocks first and then the little rocks and then the sand or whatever. It's how you fill it. Anyways. <laughs> no, nicely said. 
Well, I hope that that sort of somewhat answers the question. Yeah. You know, knowledge is important. Knowledge is power. I think businesses are faced with having to make several bets now. I don't think we have the luxury of like putting all our bets on one direction. There's enormous risk to that. And I think that's what is characteristic of this period that we're entering. Now, you probably want to know about the, the three before the yeah, fourth. Yeah, what are the three? Yeah. So, the, we, you know, we set the stage for the scientific era. And now we're into basically the 1700s, if you're following. And you have the emergence of steam power in the UK, in, the, in Britain. And that really changes the game on a lot of things, right? Because remember, before that, how are things powered? Well, with humans pushing and pulling, with horses and with oxen and, you know, various animals. That has limitations. But once steam powers things, coal fuels steam, uh, you can have pistons and all of a sudden you have machines that can do things much better than animals and humans can at scale as well. And that enables a whole lot of new things like the, the railway systems that starts to connect societies. And that's um, this is the industrial revolution, yes, right? This yeah. is like, you know, when there's like, there's no such thing as World War One, right? Mm -hmm. It was just the Great War. It became World War one once we had a second one, right? Yes. This was just the industrial revolution, right? <laughs> it was, it was. You know, prior to that, people, for the most part, lived in rural setting. They did a lot of manual work if they had work at all or they worked on farms. So suddenly something really different is happening. This is the the beginning of a, of, of sort of the urban movement. It's the creation of, you know, industrial cities in, in, in Britain and then across Europe and starting to happen in the United States as well when the country was founded. And, and so you then lead into the second uh, Industrial Revolution about 100 years later. And what defines the second Industrial Revolution is probably the most important human discovery and leverage ever, which is electricity. Probably knew I was going there. But without electricity, there's no such thing as the modern world. I mean, it, it is an incredible thing that we were able to discover and, and, and leverage, and, and it's powering everything that's happening right now. So, you know, what you have then with electricity and urbanization is the emergence of mass production factories. You have continued movement from people from the countryside into cities. You have row houses and you have the nine to five work hours. The, the weekend is invented. And, you know, the modern world is, is, is starts. The world that we know today begins in, in earnest for the first time. And then that actually lasts for a long time. Until you get up into the you know 1900s, the 20th century, and you have the start of the third revolution, which is the information age. And in fact, we are still in that. I mean, we're very much in in the middle of the the digital transformation of society. And there there is, by the way, a lot of overlap in these revolutions. As we're in the middle of the third industrial revolution, the fourth is beginning to emerge, and we're just at the very very beginning of that. You can't have the second without the first, you can't have the third without the second. You know, that makes sense. And of course, the fourth can't happen without all of the three before it happening. I can't remember if it was you, to interject really quick, mm -hmm. that was talking about the concept of time. Was that on our, when we were, had our previous podcast? I don't know. Oh, so anyways, this, this whole idea that like, right, like time as we, you know, as we know it exists or, you know, whatever. And so 10 o'clock is 10 o'clock, right? And there's time zones and all this sort of stuff. But so back in the day, what was 10 o'clock, mm -hmm. right? So 10 o'clock was, was maybe 10.03 in Wichita. <laughs> and maybe it was like 10.06 in Dallas. And maybe it was, uh, I don't even know if they're in the same time, time zone. But so this idea, like clocks were just like 
every town hall had you know their clock that right. that rung, but none of the other town halls knew that the other people's clocks were ringing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or when to like sync them. And then finally, we had this ability to like sync everything. Mm-hmm. And then it was still kind of like this. You know, oh, now we can. We actually know exactly. Like Greenwich Mean Time, we know exactly the time. We know everybody's on the same page. And the next step of that is now with it all digital. It's like all of our phones now have the exact time all the time, every second. And the amount of like productivity gains as a society that you gain just by being on time. Like mm-hmm. you couldn't be on time because nobody actually knew when, like if you traveled to another city, if you were going to be exactly precise. And the preciseness that we have now at all times is wild. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's a good point. I, I mean, I was thinking as you were talking about that, about imagine the world before there were clocks, right? And uh, even go, even get a bit crazier. Imagine before we had any type of lighting and darkness. So you, you basically had to go to sleep when it got dark. And because that kind of, you couldn't do anything yeah otherwise i mean you could you could have fire all the time i suppose it was good business to be a candle maker yeah <laughs> it it reminds me too that so most of us you go to sleep and when we're tired at night and we wake up in the morning so we have one sleep in the past there was the concept of two sleeps now you know what this is right Ooh. so people would actually only sleep partially get up in the night eat you do a variety of things and then go back to sleep again so in the past humans actually had two sleeps hmm. He's, he's looking at me like I'm crazy. You're blowing my mind right now. Wait, but how are they getting into REM? <laughs> wait, and if you wait, if you're having two sleeps, then how could you write blog posts about this? <laughs> the five things that people do when they wait, right when they wake up, or whatever it is. Do they do both of those things in both sleeps? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, so I, I'd sort of taken you to the to the third industrial revolution, and so the third industrial revolution is really defined by digitization moving everything from an analog world to a to a digital world, a world of ones and zeros. And it's still underway. I mean, we, we still don't know where this is headed. The, you know, the first phase or what Steve Case likes to refer to, the first wave is, you know, static web page, just has a photograph and a phone number. The second wave is Yelp and Amazon and e-commerce and, you know, the, the interactivity. Um, and now the third wave is Uber apps and, and uh, WAG for, you know, getting someone to, to walk your dog or doctors on demand. It's taking all of that, but now you're facilitating human activities. It's a whole new level of value that the internet is bringing. So we're only in the third third, third wave. There may be, I think, I predict, there are multiple waves to come. Um, the true value of the internet is yet to be told. And part of that is because only half the world has access to the internet. This is, you know, we all woke up and, and checked our email and, and uh, social media when we got up this morning, but half the world didn't. Sometimes I'm envious of that. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, and it's happening. The people are getting online quicker and quicker, which is good. So it'll only be some time, perhaps a decade or two, uh, hopefully two at the, the upper end, when most humans who can get online will get online. And that'll be a very different world, right? It's very different to have, you know, 3.6 billion people connected and versus approaching, you know, 8 billion. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of good ideas. And in fact, what it really is, is, a massive new marketplace for tons of global, you know, products who can't today access them. So it, largely, it should be a positive story. I don't know where things are headed, though. So you know, there's there's a lot of things to be concerned about on the internet today. We'll see where things trend in the next few years. So the the, the third revolution is really about bits. 
where we now head into the fourth industrial revolution. This needs some explanation. The fourth industrial revolution is not only about bits, but the intersection between bits and the physical world. So it's really about bits and atoms. I like to think of it, the collision of bits and atoms, cyber physical systems, right? You seem like you want to ask a question. No, I was just going to say bits and atoms sounds like it's on 7 p.m. on Tuesdays on CBS. <laughs> <laughs> bits and atoms. Soon to replace the Big Bang. Solving two hackers that actually now work for the FBI, bits and atoms, and they, they solve crimes, buddy well, cop. It, it does sound like it should be maybe um, a sitcom. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. It could be kind of like psych, but for like, uh, I don't know, hackers. Or something. Anyways, Bits and Atoms. <laughs> Just think about it. It's out there. If anyone out there listening uh, is ready to sponsor Bits and Atoms, the mission will write the podcast. We're working sure. on it. Right We're now. working on it right now. <laughs> he is. He's, he's actually writing as we speak. Absolutely. Impressive. You guys are impressive. Okay. So, but that wouldn't be enough. That wouldn't be enough to have it characterized as a revolution. Right. So a few things about a revolution. Number one is the world in which you enter the revolution is very different from the world in which you exit it. So that's one characteristic. The second one is, unfortunately, in every revolution, there are lots of winners, but lots of losers. Right. So we're now entering this fourth industrial revolution. And in all likelihood, I mean, this, there's a good chance of this, the world in which we exit it, and who knows how long it'll be, will be very different from the world in which we know right now. Right? So what are some of those characteristics? Well, think about this. You know, you think about something like the speed at which technology is adopted. Right? And there's a, there's a whole set of different ways you can think about this. One of them is how long does it take for something to be adopted by 50 million people? Right? And so you look at something like airlines. It took many, many decades, like 50 or 60 years. You look at something like telephones. Again, many, many decades. But then you start talking about things like Facebook or even the internet, you know, reaching 50 million people took just a few years. You get something like Snapchat, barely a year. And by the way, the fastest I've seen is Pokemon Go. Yeah. Reaches 50 million users in about 17 days, right? And so you've got this velocity of adoption. So that's the first characteristic I like to think about is velocity. Now in Silicon Valley, when folks are sitting around trying to you know, think about the, the trajectory for their business. The question they, one of the first questions they're asking is how, how will we get to 1 billion users and how fast can we get there? And then once you figure that out and you kind of, then you retrofit it with the sort of the steps you got to take. I mean, that kind of ambition, that kind of reach is unprecedented. We, we never thought on those levels before. I'm going to write some software and I'm going to tell you within two years, I want a billion people to use that software. I mean, we're here in Silicon, we're in the heart of Silicon Valley right now, but and we and we hear this a lot, but in, in the vast majority of the world, this is still this like crazy idea. Now, it's not going to be crazy for that much longer because in so many places in the world, innovation and particularly software-driven innovation, this is the mindset. Could I, I want to interject here for a second, because I think that with our marketers hats on, I'm thinking about the idea of like one of the biggest things of the year is the Super Bowl because it reaches whatever, 300 million people. But there's movies like, I'm trying to think of a good one, maybe like Transformers or something like that. The Star Wars would be a good one. Black Panther, actually another one. Like how many people has Black Panther reached? How many people did Black Panther reach in the first week? It was fast, yeah. So I mean, like it, it might be a billion, I don't know. Like I, I don't I don't really, I mean, probably not because of how that stuff works. But but in theory, it's it's interesting to think of 
things that are aided by technology, not just the technology, mm-hmm. like not just the hard tech, but the the actual impact, the thing, the problem you're solving or the creation, that that is the thing reaching The ability them. to reach scale is yeah, yeah dramatically for shortening. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyways, it's, it's, it's not just like, you know, a tech product. It's like the whatever the thing is doing for that person is what's reaching them, mm-hmm. you know, at scale. And a lot of times, like you said, it's, you know, with Lyft or Uber, it's like something literally picking you up and taking you somewhere or whatever it is. So anyhow. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. You know, so so let me just kind of finish on the different characteristics and then we'll kind of bring it back to your point, which I think is important to discuss a little bit. So I've been kind of, you know, talking a little bit too much probably about the velocity piece. I think we get that. So speed to to distribution. Second is scope, right? It's just the sheer scale. You know, for much of the Renaissance, Age of Enlightenment, first, second revolutions, the stuff that was happening was in a small set of the world. To be, let's be clear, it was happening in Europe and the United States uh, for the most part and happening in little bits in, in other places, but not much. We have to get until, you know, at least the sort of middle of the 20th, 20th century to see the emergence of China. And then, you know, a few years later, you start to see the rapid emergence of India and, uh, you know, eventually the South, all of Southeast Asia. But ideas and wealth and access to capabilities was fairly narrow for for a long time. It's but now that's not the case. Okay, another characteristic of the fourth industrial revolution, absolute scope. You can reach billions of people on every continent, almost in every country today. And then the third one is impact, right? The actual impact you can have. You can write a line of software in Palo Alto, California, and impact people in India, like 10 minutes later. You know, you can you can change the business model for Uber here in San Francisco such that people in India can either suffer because they have businesses that run on Uber or they can prosper, right? That's the consequence and the impact of this global infrastructure of connected ideas and, and software and, and things. And the last one, and this is not talked about often, I throw this in as the fourth dimension of the fourth industrial revolution, which is convergence, right? It's when we start to bring big ideas together. So today I've, you know, as I was sharing with you earlier, I had a, uh, was working with a, some Australian business leaders. And I was I kept using Uber as the example, just a very convenient example. Uber doesn't happen just when you have smartphones. Uber does, doesn't happen when you have a social computing or big data or GPS or cloud computing. You have to have all of it for it to happen, right? For I think us, this is fairly intuitive, but it's it's a big idea generally. And so when you think about the things we're talking about today, we're talking about artificial intelligence being embedded in everything within a few years. We're talking about uh, everything being in the cloud and accessible from any device. We're talking about every device talking to every device. We're talking about big data, right? Each of those are very important, but mash them up, bring them together. You have convergence, then some really important things happen. Possibly, hopefully positive mostly, but jeepers. There's some negativity there that can happen too, because are we in control still when all this gets converged? Did you have? Yeah, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> you have this look. I want to be able to answer your question. I know no, you're I curious. It. This is great. One of the things that we talked about in the Future Cities podcast was this idea of like streetlights, right? Is like streetlights were this thing that for, you know, however long, since the lamplighters, right? We need to light our streets so we can get around. It has one purpose. It has one job. When it's dark, keep it lit so we can drive around. We can see our kids. We can do whatever. The job of a streetlight light can now change mm-hmm. exponentially. Now they're 
literal digital posts that are around all of our cities that are that have electricity hooked up to them and can now be sensors for anything potentially it can be sensors to have cameras it could be sensors to hear what you've talked about like hear gunshots it could be sensors that do a, a myriad of different things and that and can connect to the cloud and can do all sorts of different things that opportunity is like massive to reimagine the things that have had one job for a long yeah. time and i think that that's something that's just like again so empowering but it's also so crazy because you're like when you watch what was that one uh like die hard four or whatever the one that's like all techie and the guy's like shutting off city blocks and like shutting mm -hmm. off other city blocks and like reroutes helicopters and doing all sorts of crazy stuff like that but like potentially there are like downsides to that stuff too mm -hmm. but but the upsides are massively massively high yield mm -hmm. for the population at large sure yeah yeah such an important point let me just talk briefly about the cyber-physical thing I mentioned earlier. Yes. Yeah. I kind of said it and didn't do anything about it. Um, and I know everyone's on the edge of their seat saying, hey, I hope he comes back to that. So I'm coming <laughs> back to it. And it does build on everything I've been, we've been talking about. So by the way, the term industry 4.0 comes up a lot when we talk about the industrial, the fourth industrial revolution. They are sometimes used interchangeably. I'm going to make the case that industry 4.0 is a subset. I actually don't think they're identical. But you'll read stuff online, you'll go to YouTube, and you'll see that they're actually used the same way. Industry 4.0 is where we get into the industrial piece, right? Because there's got to be a, a core industrial piece here. And that term actually is spun up in Germany. It's a combination of regulation, some legislation, behavioral changes, and a philosophy. I mean, that's the kind of very dumbed-down version I can that I can think of how I, I explain it to myself for how you manufacture things, how you mm -hmm. build things. And Germany is still a big manufacturing country. And so what's the difference between the world prior to an industry 4.0 and a world in an industry 4.0 or a fourth industrial revolution? Well, think about a production line and you know there's building machines and there's 20 machines on this production line and you know at the beginning it's doesn't look like much and a quarter of a mile down the the production line it's actually a finished product and it's going into trucks, right? So it's going along the line. And there's a lot of little robot arms that are are interfering with, you know, putting things, uh, widgets on and screwing in bolts and screws and things. And so, of course, you know, with, with all this mechanization, something's going to go wrong at some point. Uh, one of the machines is going to fail. So in the past, you would have, a couple of things would have happened. Number one is you would have learned about a problem when it happened. So when, when one of the robot arms stops working, you know it's, it's not working because the production line stops. Yeah. And the second thing you need to do is send out a technician or a team of technicians. And they go to the down, they walk down the production line and they're fixing it for a while. Well, time is money in this case because those machines are not being finished and going into the back of that truck and being going to the warehouse and getting sold. So you want that to be back up and running quickly. Now, in the fourth industrial revolution, there's two things that are different about, which are basically the opposite of what I just said. Number one is, the production line can anticipate problems. So it knows that they're going to happen, right? There's predictive technology, that's really cool. And secondly, when it knows something's gonna happen, the robots fix itself. So it's self-healing. So compare that relative to the prior world. Yeah, I mean, it, it, two things popped in my head. It was like Terminator and R2-D2, <laughs> right? <laughs> like R2-D2 has the little thing that like shoots yeah. out and it's like cauterizing itself because it has like got hurt or something. And same thing with uh, 
with Terminator or T2 yeah. um, of like, you know, like it knows that it got hurt and then it's like fixing itself, right? Yeah. Um, not that the world is all going to be little robots running around, but but the idea of like, mm-hmm. yeah, things fixing themselves when they know that, you know, something has, yeah, you're alerted to it, but also helps already on the way before yeah. no human needs to click the send help sort of button like right. the on star button right is like oh helps on the way mm-hmm. uh you've I, we notice you've been in a crash helps on the way sort of thing it's yeah good, good branding by the way good job on star <laughs> <laughs> well played <laughs> now the last sort of way i want to frame this and then i'll come back to sort of what it all means is it's not just about tech right you know you could end the podcast now and say well that's kind of interesting a lot of technology changes that would be unfortunately the wrong way to think about this we have to factor in a whole lot of other shifts and and there's a few few things going on. Number one is massive demographic changes in the world, right? And you know if you look at sort of the beginning of the of the 21st century, 2000 versus 2050 versus 2100, there's a few things that are happening. Southeast Asia is growing very very fast. Uh, you know it's one of the fastest growing areas. Population is is, is skyrocketing in in uh, all across Southeast Asia and India. Uh, U.S. is slowing down. Europe is slowing down. In fact, reversing. Populations are dropping. You get to the middle of the century and, and beyond, and you start to see continued growth in Southeast Asia, but massive growth in Africa. Huge population growth. And by the time you get to the end of the 21st century, you have uh, most of the young people, most of the people ready to, to, to work and to bring you know, ideas to the world are, are in, on the continent of Africa. Yeah, I mean, it's something like 15 of the top 20 cities in the world by 2100 mm-hmm. population-wise are going to be in Africa. Yeah, um, that's incredible. You know, I think it's like Lagos, Nigeria is going to be like 100 million people, a city of 100 million people by like 2100. I mean, yeah. it's like massive, massive growth. Yeah. So what do you, and the question is, so what do you do with that information? Well, look, if you're if you're selling products, you, know, you need to understand the, the marketplaces of the future. Who are the buyers? And sort of you think about the U.S., it looks like it's going to slow down population-wise considerably. You know, Europe is going to have a, a very old population. And the youth and, and this energy will be coming from two other places, Africa and India uh, will dominate. And we'll, we'll see what happens ultimately with, with China. So you have that. Then you have, and there's a relationship between this point now and the demographics, is shifting economics. Like, who are the buyers? Right? And so think about what economies or what's we'll talk about countries will be dominant by 2050. And surprisingly, you're, we're going to see Indonesia be high up on the list, right? We're going to see Nigeria. That was a good call in your part. Uh, hopefully, Brazil can get through some of its sort of near-term challenges. But Brazil has the potential to be a significant economy. Well, remember, we were talking about, this is like 10 years ago, about BRIC, yeah. right? The BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China. Yeah, it's like kind of like yeah, sort of like half right, half wrong a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's but again, it's a ten year time horizon. It's not like an actual long time horizon. Yeah. yeah, Lauren just got back from Brazil. It was uh, our host for Marketing Trends. Yeah, she was just basically explaining about the pace of Brazilian startups, and it's just it's staggering. So mm-hmm. she was meeting with like New Bank, which is like a fast growing yeah. bank, and a number of others were asking her to like help out, consult, be on their boards. The state of their technology there is. It's, it's basically like this whole environment where there's like zero entitlement and there's typically only one of a uh, 
category king in each market. There really yeah. isn't a lot of competition. So it's just, yeah, it's an interesting uh, economy. Like but, to yeah. escape, basically that escape velocity for a startup is like, if you escape, there it's are, like- There really are no copycats whatsoever. Yeah, you're so like if, looking if around. You get any type of, <laughs> sure, if you get any type of lead, um, it's off to the races. Yeah. Good point. And you know, and I like your point about in, in terms of, if you measure this too short, you're going to see fluctuations that would say to you, there's no way things are going to be on a positive trajectory over the long long term. But if you just look at the long term, those are just small little fluctuations, right? At least that's what we project. There's, there's lots of unknowns here. Uh, it came up today. We had a really nice discussion about, is there a big event that sort of changes our calculus around being on the internet? You know, is there, a, I, I'm not a fan of this term, but sort of a 9-11 that happens on the internet that the days that follow and the weeks that follow, everything changes. That's possible, right? I'm, I'm thinking about the um, Lights Out book where, you know, he talks about, Ted Koppel talks about, you know, major power outages in the United States and what that means to, for example, food distribution, the medicine distribution. Our systems are very vulnerable if there's a major attack on the system or there's a major failure. The last thing I want to talk about, and by the way, we're I'm, I'm really abbreviating for the short time we have together here because this I is mean a, this is yeah we're talking about 22 lessons yeah. packed into skimming uh, the surface. <laughs> yeah, this skimming is skimming the surface. We are is climate change. You can't talk about the future without now talking about climate change. It would be problematic to be talking about the emergence of this incredible new tech and what it means for society if we didn't realize the society, the environment of society, will change in the same time horizon, right? Because the changes are already here. This is assuming you believe the scientific consensus. I think a lot of us do. You know, there's going to be cases of cities that have to retreat or they have to build major, you know, walls. Or, I mean, we have some big choices ahead of us that are going to impact those other things that are happening. So I think you need to frame the fourth industrial revolution through the lens of the environment, of the planet. By the way, there is one more. I, I would be remiss if I didn't do one more. And... We talk about artificial intelligence, big topic. By the way, it's funny in my in my video series, it's one of the videos and it's like three minutes long. Like you can't go into depth about AI in three minutes. But let me summarize in a sort of a, a layperson's words for myself, this is not for the audience, which is much smarter than I am, which is, you know, it's artificial. You you are trying to mimic some some basic human behavior such as recognition for patterns. You know, is it a banana or an apple? AI is going to be pretty good at that. What we don't talk about a lot is thing called superintelligence, right? Superintelligence is not AI. Superintelligence is human intelligence and better. So today we're we're kind of saying, you know, AI. If you kind of distill it down, it's really useful. It augments us a lot. We have it already on our phones and in all sorts of devices. But what happens when? I'll just say this just for fun. We reach a singularity where where robot where computers are equal to humans. The next day, that only lasts for a day, by the way. The next day, the robots and the, and the computers are more intelligent than humans. And the day after that, much more. And the third day after that, a lot more. Are we working for the robots You know, at, at this point? I, I mean, I think so. And, and so that's a little bit ways out. I mean, that seems like maybe the final act of the fourth industrial revolution. And you know, there's a, there's a number of luminaries who think that's the last act of the human race, if we don't kind of manage it right. Not John Connor. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> when we brought you in here to talk about fourth industrial revolution, I'm not gonna lie, I literally thought we were talking about zombies. So I, you know, I'm gonna. <laughs> 
I am gonna just go ahead and take my loss here. Uh, I did not understand the top. No, I'm totally kidding. I mean, I think it's I think it's really interesting to like play those scenarios out into the future of just like what what are we talking about? You know, one of the one of the things, Chad, and you're the world's Michael Crichton biggest fan slash uh, um, you know slash expert is you know a lot of the stuff that we created in science fiction has come true. You know, you go even like, you know, that Chad, you talk about near-term science fiction a lot. And like, there's a lot of stuff that we're creating that is that is real now, that was not real, you know, back in the day. Yeah. I mean, the best entrepreneurs of our time were, were inspired by sci-fi and they didn't necessarily get their ideas on their own. They were inspired by sci-fi. Like the Kindle was inspired by Neil Stevenson, it's codenamed Fiona after the daughter in Neil Stevenson's book. Elon is, is inspired by the Ann Banks culture series, uh, among other things. And yeah, I think that's what's very interesting is I think that the human ability to predict the future is going to come into sharper focus in the coming years. And people who can claim, whether it's factual or erroneously, to predict the future uh, are going to be in increasingly like higher demand by corporations and whether it's through marketers or you know, we see this right now with a lot of like sci-fi writers being hired as consultants to try to predict but yeah, it's a yeah. trend that's going to continue. What's the thing that just we just published? I think I did. We put we might have put in the missions newsletter. But uh, the thing about Nike. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, that Nike's Nike and somebody else are have an active like petition. They're hiring science fiction writers or something like this. Or yeah, whatever it is. It's just stuff like that. Or you're like science fact. Yeah, I think so. We are very much influenced. I mean, I'm influenced by Star Wars every day. Sure. I mean that that def that's defined my life in so many ways. Um, Magic, Magic Leap, same thing. The 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 chessboard and the mm -hmm. and you know, Obi Wan, you're our only hope. Yeah. Ben Kenobi, uh, Obi Wan, he wears the same hood. Like they didn't make the. Nobody was just like you know Ben, same last name. Anyways, maybe it's popular last name. <laughs> but let's think of the you know. There's a lot of darkness to what I described right now, depending how you're listening to it. But I I do I'm I'm an optimist, you know, and we have to be. I think more and more of us have to be optimists. Let's take one thing, right, which is how do we provide medical care more equally around the world, right? I mean, this is a simple question, but a huge issue. We cannot produce enough doctors from hospitals. It's impossible to do. We just, there's no capability for us to actually churn out enough doctors, and, and it's never going to happen. There's no way for humans to do that. And yet, I think there's a responsibility for humanity to have some equality around, you know, some of the basics of, of medicine, right? And so- Doctors as we know it. So like- That's I, right. Like, yeah. That's like, where I'm going. Yeah. The, yeah. the tricorders are coming. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's like the same thing of, you know, in, in the future cities talking about Habitat for Humanity, how like, well, you know, they're building a house like every six seconds. Yeah. And it's like one fiftieth of the demand of the world, right? It's like, there's no way housing as you know it is not- sustainable yes. to continue to build doctors yeah. as you, like the what makes a house or what makes a doctor is the definition of the thing is what will change right yeah yeah the potential positive here is that you have to think completely differently about how you do that and if you kind of think about velocity scope impact and convergence those four characteristics it means you know we we have the ability for the first time to potentially move away from that that human, our, our mindset limitation that we ask, that we have to have a hospital in every, excuse me, a, a doctor and maybe a, some sort of medical clinic in every area is, um, you know, you think about 
one example in India, which is there's not a lot of high end, high expertise medical care in rural areas, but it's possible to have you know some of the auxiliary medical services like nurses or even entry level nurses, and you know even though the world's not internet connected, the world has a lot of cell phones. That's a place where we've actually almost got saturation of the world. So you, you give a, a person with some limited medical knowledge, some basic training, access to a telephone, a cell phone, and you connect them back to a hub that has highly sophisticated medical professionals. Now you can start to distribute care. But take that one further, factor in some AI, because some of this stuff is predictable. And, and now you begin to see how you can scale equality in medicine through completely different ways of thinking about the use of devices, connectivity, the internet, data, cloud, et cetera. So, so Clayton Christensen in his definition of disruption, which like disruption's thrown around a lot, but like mm -hmm. to, you know, not necessarily to his definition, you know, talks about something that's exponentially better than nothing. Right. Like when he when he was talking about like the radio, it's like you go from not being able to hear stuff to now it doesn't matter how big or bulky or whatever. It's like me and my brother could go sit in a field and listen to music away from our parents, like the, or the portable radio or whatever <laughs> it was, like exponentially better than nothing. And I think, you know, without, you know, talking about like the profession of being a doctor and everything, the Hippocratic Oath and all those other things that go into it, the idea of like, what is medical care and changing? And like you said, AI, what we know their AI is really, really good at is pattern matching. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if you're seeing thousands of things that are the same over time with billions of photographs and all of those mm -hmm. different things, like what can something that is pattern matching do to, you know, certain types of things? I think about this with, I had to get a tooth pulled. How is getting a tooth pulled? Like that is so different from like dentistry. Mm -hmm than you know other things like maybe that one section of dentistry could be spun off into its own thing where it's like just putting in a tooth or whatever it is because it's the same thing or what you know those like types of repetitive tasks where instead of i'm just going to look and look at a mouth and figure out what's wrong it's like if you can figure out the the one problem that occurs over and over and over and over again you know there's an opportunity there for to figure some, out every problem yeah, yeah exactly and so for me this all comes down to well, who cares? Why does this matter, right? And, and and we talked about that a little bit at the beginning with your question. Just as sort of a refresher, I go back to a couple of things. One is relevancy, right? Relevancy of your organization, of yourself, in terms of the value you bring to whatever it is that you're doing. You know, I think about how you make decisions within organizations in the knowledge that your your landscape is changing very, very rapidly. I think about behavior. At what point do we finally say, collectively, we're going to do something about the future of the planet, otherwise we're all doomed, right? We, we have to eat less meat or even eliminate meat. We have to not stop creating trash. We need to drive electric cars or not have cars at all. I mean, there's a set of big choices we have if we're going to last you and, know, 100 years. And I would and I would add on to all of those, the alternative, which is like, we need to figure out, we need to make technology that eats trash. Mm. We need to... You know, all we, at the same time, like yeah, yeah, like like the, the the alternative is like you know the um 
you know, how do you get someone to stop eating bad food or, or whatever it is? Like, it, it's nothing about them eating bad food. It's about choosing an alternative that gets rid of the the problem. So, I, I mean, I think that it's like we meet, we need to make decisions leveraging technology and creating technology that makes it so the hard thing, which is like, do I throw this in the compost or the recycling? Like, what type of plastic is this? How do I know? Mm-hmm. I, it's all going to the same place anyway. Like, how do we take those decisions mm-hmm. that a human being is fully unequipped to like figure out on their own or be apathetic because like if your mom's sick in the hospital and you're trying to work two jobs to keep you know your family alive you generally don't care about whether or not that piece of plastic is like the right thing where what bin it's supposed to go in the human being is going to make the decision that's in the best interest for them and their families and i think that when the technologies that people are creating that can eliminate those decisions from our vocabulary or from our decision-making tree altogether are the ones that have like exponential results. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well said. What else? That's it? That's all we got? Yeah. <laughs> Skimmed over the surface pretty nicely. Did, I know. A, couple, did a couple deep dives. Yeah. Uh, some some just really, really rough commentary from yours truly. On, uh, <laughs> uh, pretty... I love all the contemporary references. That was, uh, that was fun. Yeah, thanks for hanging out. We'll have you back really soon. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. You're it's, the man. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And, yeah. uh, and definitely we'll... Uh, We'll link up everything from your LinkedIn learning courses. And when this comes out, we'll uh, spread it far and wide to our mm. audience. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I, 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 I so enjoy being here with you guys. You're, you're, you're a blast and you're doing some amazing things here. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Thank, thank you. you so much. See everybody next time. Thank you again to our friends at Salesforce. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce, a leading cloud platform that makes building AI-powered apps faster and easier. With Salesforce, now everyone can build apps for their organization. Learn more at salesforce.com slash buildapps.